Okay, folks, Ecclesiastes 7, you can turn there. Ecclesiastes 7, we've been taking a tour through this broken world that we have inherited, um, and our tour guide has been none other than King Solomon. Uh, Solomon has been showing us the, the same uh, maladies, the same injustices, the same problems that we are uh, that we're dealing with today, the same, these, these things that are as, as evident today uh, in our world as they were during Solomon's time. And he's been teaching us how to navigate this broken world, uh, how to navigate through this life and through this world that is, that is broken primarily because of, of sin. Now, we said last time that it's a, you can look at Ecclesiastes as sort of an applicational commentary of, of Genesis 3 and the things that took place there in uh, the fall in, in the Garden of Eden. But Solomon's helping us to walk in wisdom. Uh, to walk wisely in this broken world, uh, Charles uh, Swindoll defined wisdom this way. He said, wisdom is the God-given ability to see life with rare objectivity and to handle life with rare stability. Wisdom is the God-given ability to see life with rare objectivity and to handle life with rare stability. In other words, to see life primarily with a God-centered perspective and then to walk carefully, to walk according to the truth so that we don't draw wrong conclusions. As we observe, as we look out in, into the world, as we see things as they are, and as we even examine our own experience in, in our own hearts, sometimes we draw faulty conclusions. And so living wisely is, is seeing life through, through this God-centered lens and then being very careful to walk according to the truth that God has revealed so that we don't draw those wrong conclusions and then make bad decisions. So this morning we, we pick up where we left off last time in chapter 7, verse 15. And once again, Solomon's counsel here is, is so critical for us, is so, so relevant for uh, our lives. I just want to read a few verses uh, here. And actually this is going to be sort of a two-part um, series, if you will, on this section. We actually won't, we won't get into the verses very much today. We'll be laying a lot of groundwork and then coming back next Sunday and, and wrapping up. But beginning there in verse 15, we'll just read down through verse 18. Solomon writes, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also let, uh, not let go of the other, for the one who fears God will come forth with both of them. Now, a few verses um, in Ecclesiastes are more susceptible to bad interpretations as these verses. Uh, as you read them sort of at, at first glance, Solomon appears to be saying, don't be too holy, right? Don't be too holy, and, and, but on the other side, don't be too wicked, but learn to live in moderation. Uh, or as we might say, or fi find the middle way, find, find the uh, somewhere in the middle, do the best that you can to strike a balance between virtue and vice. 
Uh, the problem with that is that that is completely at war with what the Bible teaches about morality, what the Bible teaches about being holy, uh, about pursuing the Lord and working out your salvation and being a doer of the word. The Bible outright rejects this sort of do-as-you-please casual approach to Christian living. But people come across these verses and think that what Solomon's saying here is that you just need to do, do good a little and then sin a little, and that is the well-balanced Christian life. <laughs> if you just do a little, don't be overly righteous, but don't, don't be too bad. Don't be overly wicked or don't multiply righteousness, don't multiply wickedness. But is that what Solomon is teaching here? We know that's what the world thinks, right? I mean, that's, that's the, the, the view of the world, that there is, there is virtue in avoiding these moral extremes. And so you, you don't want to be a jerk. I mean, the, the world doesn't want you to go around and, 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 and be being ugly and, and mistreating people, especially if it's them, right? And, and don't kill anybody. So it's a, don't, don't do this over here. We don't want you to be a jerk. We want you to be a little bit righteous, but not too righteous. You know, it's as if he's saying, you know, do this, but not so much. It's, in, it's okay to enjoy a little bit of sin, right? I mean, that's kind of what the world says, isn't it? We don't want you to be a, an idiot and a fool and a jerk, but, but, but it's okay for you to enjoy some sin. I mean, don't be a killjoy when you're around us. But is that what these verses mean? Well, in, in order to know, and, and this is with really any passage in the Bible, I think it's important that we understand the, the historical and the cultural background of what's going on here. That is to say that when we interpret a, a biblical passage, we do so in its historical setting. Uh, we don't read, read the scriptures as if they were written yesterday by us. Okay, We read the scriptures as if they were written by the biblical author, the biblical writer, in this case, about 3,000 years ago. Now, isn't it true, in one sense, you say, uh, isn't it true that the problems that the biblical writers dealt with in the Old and the New Testaments are, are not exactly our problems? not exactly the things that we're dealing with today. In other words, in their historical context, uh, don't the, the writers and the authors of Scripture seem to be wrestling with problems and issues and scenarios that we don't always wrestle with today? And yet, when you think about it, we do wrestle with the same problems. Um, they just come to us in a different form, or, say, or maybe in a, in a different container. For example... Virtually all of Paul's epistles touch on the issue of circumcision and salvation, which by and large isn't an issue that we are dealing with in the church today. Okay, I mean, I don't know how if you had any discussions this week or were struggling over this issue of circumcision and salvation. Probably not. Not something that we, we talk a lot about in the church today. But we could say that that, that kind of problem is still around today. Right? It's just in a different form. So if you take the ritual of circumcision and, and you replace that, if you will, with, say, the ritual of baptism or confirmation, uh, trying to be saved by some religious ceremony, then you could say, yes, this problem is still with us. Right? 
So my suggestion is that Solomon's sort of shocking counsel that he gives, especially here in verse 16, becomes less shocking and even becomes acceptable when we understand the historical problem that Solomon was facing and that he was dealing with. And when we find that problem in its historical setting, we also understand how this problem is still around with us today. So I'll give, I'll give you another example. If, uh, if you took one of your, if you took those of you who have kids, if you took your child to get a, a, um, a physical checkup and the doctor told you, came out after this basic exam and came out and told you that they were planning to amputate your child's leg from the knee down, you would be shocked, right? <laughs> Whoa, hey, we just came for, a, for just a routine thing, okay? That would surprise and shock you. But if the doctor at that point went on to tell you and to describe to you the fact that your child had a serious infection that was affecting the soft tissue in in his leg and that if they did not amputate, that that disease, that infection would spread through your child's body and would eventually kill them. If he came out and gave you that explanation, then what seemed like something that was shocking and unacceptable would all of a sudden be seen as wise, right? So at first, just this announcement, hey, we're going to take your child's leg off, that would shock you and surprise you. But if you understood the, the details and the context by which that doctor was making that assessment and recommending that treatment, then all of a sudden that thing that sounded sort of bizarre and foolish and uh, extreme, now all of a sudden is... Man, I love, man, what a wise doctor. You know, man, what an amazing guy. I mean, because I mean, he's going to step in and essentially he's going to, through this procedure, possibly save your child's life. In other words, knowing the problem that is being addressed is key in determining the validity of the advice that is given. Right? Knowing the problem that is being addressed is key in determining the validity of the advice that is given. So we're going to take a journey, okay, a little process of, of discovery this morning that I hope will, will help you to see the problem that Solomon was addressing so that you can then see the wisdom in what he is saying, okay? So these verses in this particular passage that sort of, whoa, what, so we're supposed to sin a little and, but, but be righteous but not too righteous? What seems to be shocking, I think if we lay this groundwork this week, and then when we come back and we sort of walk through these verses one by one, it'll all be clear, right? <laughs> because we'll, we'll know the problem that Solomon was, was dealing with, and we'll also find out that his problem may actually be our problem, right? So we've seen this throughout Ecclesiastes, right? I mean, he makes these points, but it's so easy to then take in principle what he is saying and pull that into our own experience. And we'll see that, I think, once, once again. So when we're talking about Bible interpretation, we often use this phrase, context determines meaning. Context determines meaning. And there are different uh, circles, if you will, of, of context. Uh, we have what we call the immediate context which includes the verses that, that lie around the particular passage that we're studying. And if you'll notice here, the immediate context of these verses, verses 15 down to verse 18, is verse 14, which says, In the day of prosperity, be happy. 
But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. So we talked about this last time. The, the, the principle is pretty, pretty straightforward and clear. God gives emotional, spiritual, physical prosperity and blessing at some times in our life. And at other times, God brings emotional, spiritual, relational, physical adversity. And he does this for what reason? So that we continue to trust him, right? So that we keep trusting him. So as, as these things change in your life, I mean, you go through these different experiences, you go through these different times and, and seasons in your life, some of adversity, some of prosperity, and as these things change in your life, you learn very quickly, you are not in control. You are not in control. God is in control. Uh, God gives you one, and then he gives you the other in such a way that you won't think that you know the future or that you control the future and consequently, you will, will trust him. That's, that's, the, that's, that's what we hope is the, is the end, the, the net result. That, that we not grow self-reliant, right? Knowing, for instance, that, that we won't be experiencing some trial for the next few many weeks and months. And what, what if you knew that? <laughs> what if you knew that you were not going to have any adversity for the next 12 months? Would that impact the way you live? <laughs> it sure would. If you knew that, okay, what, what, what if you knew if you're in the midst of adversity, what if you knew that you were going to be in this thing for a certain amount of time, right? Would that change the way that you live? I mean, this would have a huge impact on you. But we don't know these things, right? I mean, you, things are going well, and when they are, what the verse he tells us here, we're supposed to be glad. You know, don't resent good times. When the prosperity comes, don't, don't, don't feel like you have to downplay it, enjoy it, give God thanks, rejoice that you have days of prosperity, right? Times when you have good health, times when relationships are good, times when the, 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 the bank account has money in it, right? Rejoice and, and be glad in those times, but be careful because there's other times too, and you don't know when those times are coming and when they're changing. But all, for the, all, all in hopes that we will, we will guard against self-sufficiency and self-reliance and continue to trust the Lord. So verse 14 is one circle of context. In other words, it's, it, it helps us to see what we're getting into because he mentions this issue of adversity, this day of adversity and day of prosperity, and our inability to know what's, how long it's going to last and what's coming next. Uh, well, we also have a, another circle of context to think about, and this is we call sometimes the historical context, the events and the, and the worldviews. Uh, the information about the author and the original audience, the, the historical occasion. And taking these things into consideration is just as important. Uh, knowing the life situation so that we can understand what the author and his readers would have been thinking. Again, Solomon's not living in the, in the 21st century, okay, so that we don't read this as if something that we wrote. We have to sort of think through Solomon's experience and what was going on in in the culture in which he, in which he lived, what was, what was the sort of historical occasion that surrounded these, these writings? So let's consider uh, this historical setting, Solomon's historical setting, or his, say, his intellectual world. So in, in our church, we promote 
what we call biblical counseling. It's, uh, it's basically, we, we believe that God's Word is, is sufficient to deal with all the spiritual, all the relational and emotional problems of life. Okay, we believe the Word of God speaks sufficiently to, to, and comprehensively to that. Now, if, if you had a problem in Solomon's day, the question is, where would you go for counsel? Where would you go for counsel? And there would be a, a couple of options. Uh, we know based on Deuteronomy chapter 33 that the Levitical priests were uh, appointed by God to be an instructors of Israel. They were, the, they were the, those who, who would teach Israel the law of God. And so one option would be you, you could go to these individuals, you could go to these men and, and seek their advice and their counsel about, about life and about choices and, and, and wise living. Uh, or uh, in Solomon's day, there, there was an, you might, you might call it an intellectual uh, subculture that we, we could refer to as the wisdom culture, the wisdom culture. And in the nation of Israel, the book of Proverbs was the, the written, God-inspired sort of embodiment of that wisdom culture. And the fact is, every, every culture during Solomon's day, every ancient Near Eastern culture had a wisdom movement. They had men who dedicated themselves to counseling people regarding the practical and the ethical decisions of life. Uh, that, that is to say that, that all these cultures had their worldly equivalent to the book of Proverbs. So this, this ancient wisdom culture uh, is the background to, for instance, the, the, the book of Job. Uh, you see Job and his friends. These weren't just sort of four or five uh, random uh, men that they just yanked off of the street and and, and had a discussion with them about life's unexpected trials. Uh, these guys were working at an extremely, what might I say, they're working at an extremely high level, okay? When you read through the book of Job, I mean, this is not just chit-chat. I mean, these guys are, are extremely uh, knowledgeable. Their, their knowledge of God was extraordinary. Uh, their, their application of the knowledge of God to everyday life, although incorrect, Right in, in, in numerous ways, was still at an incredible depth. Uh, you might even say that, that, that these men, you have Job, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu, you, you might say they were wisdom experts. These were wisdom experts. They were the expert counselors of their world. Okay? Uh, Eliphaz says this to Job in Job uh, chapter 4 and verse 3. He tells Job, he says, Behold... You have admonished many, okay? You have challenged many. You have counseled many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. What's Eliphaz saying? He's saying, listen, Job, you have counseled many. Why? Because he's one of these men. He's, he's one of these men that would have the kind of wisdom that you would want, <laughs> Right? If you had a situation in your life and you needed counsel, you'd go to a guy like Job and say, Hey, Job, i got this, ish, this situation in my family or I've got this situation at work. What do you think? And Job would have brought godly wisdom. And Eliphaz is actually acknowledging this. And what he's telling Job is, Listen, you counseled many with your words. You have helped many people. The problem now is that it's come to you. Right? The very problems that you have been counseling other people about 
these problems are now in your lap, and you're having to deal with them, and you're not very patient. You're not very patient. So these men had studied God. They had studied life. Uh, They were known to be skilled counselors because of their discipline and because of their wisdom. So, So where does Solomon fit into that picture? Well, Solomon, as we know from 1 Kings, and we've looked at this, Solomon ate and breathed and lived and had his being in the wisdom culture, right? He, he is the expert. Solomon is, you say, he is, the, he is the king of wisdom. Solomon is the king of wisdom. Uh, now, what, what wisdom teachers tried to do is they, they would try to boil down or to distill down God's working in the world into simple principles, Okay, I mean, I find myself doing this in counseling. And any of you who are involved in counseling, you, 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 as you're studying the Word, you're trying to think of a way to convey the truth of Scripture and to get it into a sort of a, a simple form so that you can translate and transfer that, those principles and that truth to other people, right? So when I sit down with someone during the week and we're talking about marriage issues, I, I get in, obviously get into the text of Scripture, but I don't want to... I don't want to overwhelm them with all of those details. So I don't, I don't like do a 50-minute a Bible study with people on the meaning of some verse. I, I'm, I want to be faithful to the meaning of the text, but I'm trying to find a way to sort of, in principle, bring these things down so that they're, they're, they're more transferable. And the person can walk away, and if you ask that person, hey, what, what did you learn in counseling today? They could say it in a sentence. Does that make sense? It's like I, I want to try to make this concise and make this clear. And so that is what wisdom teachers do. They, they try to boil these things down to simple principles, principles that explain and point out that the patterns of how God works in the world and in certain situations. And then, they would, and, then, and then people would use those patterns to guide their day-to-day decisions. So they, they, would, they would try to bring these things down into simple principles, and then they would take the principles, and they would say, okay, based upon that, then what decision should I make today in this particular circumstance? So the question is, where does Solomon get these principles? Where does Solomon get the principles, for instance, that we find in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs? Some even believe that Solomon wrote Job. I mean, he's he's considered by some commentators to be the potential author, although the, the events of Job and his life are much older than that, back to the, the days of the patriarchs. But some believe that it's actually Je- Je- uh, Solomon is the, is the actual author of that particular book and that he's giving us various, he's sort of coming at us at different ways, trying to give us this, give us God's wisdom on, on the issues of life. But where did Solomon get this? Well, obviously he got it from the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, he was, he was a, a God-inspired uh, author of, of Scripture. But the question is this, he got it through the Holy Spirit in what, in what or in where? Where, where was this stuff coming from? Where was this wisdom coming from that Solomon gives to us, for instance, in, in the Proverbs? And the answer to that is he got it from the law. He got this from the Pentateuch. He got this from Torah, uh, those first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, and we know that uh, among God's people that the basis of, of, of all their wise and sort of life-shaping principles was the Mosaic Law. Uh, the law was the foundation of Israel's wisdom and, and ethics in daily 
practical living. That is to say that Proverbs, think of it this way, Proverbs connects directly back to the law. And the themes of Proverbs flow right from the law. Now, when you, when you read the law, something that immediately sort of jumps out at you and that you immediately notice is that the law of Moses is extremely cause and effect. Extremely cause and effect. And one of the things that, that the teachers in the wisdom culture noticed is that God works in this way. God, God works in a cause and effect manner. But we use this, this phrase, and Galatians use, says this, you reap what you sow, right? You reap what you sow. And that kind of thinking underlies uh, uh, the whole Mosaic law. For example, Exodus chapter 20, it's the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, about honoring your parents. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land in which the Lord your God gives you, right? Cause and effect. You're supposed to honor your father and your mother, and that is the result of that, the consequence of that, is that you will, your days may be prolonged in the land. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 40. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I'm giving you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Verse 33, you shall walk in the way at which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. So the idea is this, a certain thing, if certain input leads to a certain output, Okay. The idea was that if you lived rightly, God would prolong your days, God would bless you, and God would give you a good life, okay? And the opposite was true as well, okay? That's why when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning in verse 15, you read this, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all of his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you cursed shall be in the you sh, uh, shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the country cursed shall you shall your basket and your kneading bowl cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground the increase of your herd and the young of your flock cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out the lord will send upon you curses confusion and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. <laughs> in, in simple terms, the law says over and over, if you live badly, God will blast you. And if you live well, God will overwhelmingly bless you. Now we have the historical books of the Old Testament and they're filled with examples of the, of the Mosaic law at, at, at work. So you have this cause and effect, you have examples of this cause and effect principle, this, this God-given principle working. For example, when, when you see certain kings in the historical books, you see certain kings doing badly, what happens? God deals with that, right? So Uzziah tried to offer incense in the temple in, the temple in place of, of the Levitical priest, and what did God do? He gave him leprosy, okay? 
All right, so you see this in the lives of, of not him, but many of the kings, but not just those who are in authority and those who are rulers. You have servants, right? You have Elisha's servant. Uh, he lied about the money that, that, were, that was in the clothes that were given to him by Naaman, and guess what God gave him? Leprosy. <laughs> so ungodly living leads to bad consequences. The Psalms. The Psalms reflect this cause and effect principle, especially those Psalms that we would put into the sort of categorically, we would call them wisdom Psalms. For instance, Psalm chapter 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Then you could almost say parenthetically, therefore, it's almost implied, therefore, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and it's, in whatever he does, he prospers. All right? That's the righteous man. What about the wicked? Verse 4, The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 37, verse 9, For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. So this this principle was so ingrained in the wisdom culture of the Old Testament that, that in Psalm 73, Asaph wrote, in a sense, to help wisdom students to handle the shock of it when God didn't seem to be following the normal pattern. <laughs> so he's saying he wrote this psalm to say that those, to help those people that were struggling with, well, well what, what if this doesn't happen? I mean, what if God says that he's going to take care of the wicked, he's going to punish the wicked, and he's going to give prosperity to those who are godly and righteous and obedient, but to handle the shock of God not doing that, <laughs> of God actually allowing the wicked to prosper, he says this in Psalm 73, verse 2, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity, not, not of the righteous, as I, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. <laughs> I almost slipped. I mean, this, this was almost catastrophic for my faith to look around and to see how prosperous the wicked were. He says this down in verse 16, when I pondered to, to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight, to say the least. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end. Surely, Lord, you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment, they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. What he was saying is that, that God will do this. It just God wasn't doing it in the, same t- in the right time frame, right? God was not going to bring this necessarily in the time frame that Asaph was thinking it would come. But ultimately, Asaph's able in the presence of God in the temple and in, in worshiping God to get this God-centered perspective 
that God is going to ultimately deal with all injustices and wickedness, but it may not be till the end, right? Because he says that. I perceive their end. So he's just saying, listen, if they don't get any consequences for their sin while they're walking this planet, ultimately they will have to deal with God on these things. So this is standard wisdom stuff. God follows the pattern. Now, the book of Proverbs, we can say this is, the, this is the gold medalist of the law of consequences, <laughs> of this principle of cause and effect. Proverbs is the living, beating heart of the wisdom culture. So naturally, it, it, it identifies this principle. It, it goes back to the law. It takes this concept of law, of, 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 of cause and effect, and it brings that into, into wisdom and again, it reinforces this concept that God deals with, he blasts, he punishes the wicked, and he blesses the righteous. Let me just show you a few examples. Uh, Proverbs 1, right out of the gate, verse 32. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me, wisdom, shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. Proverbs eleven five. The righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of strong men perishes, but the righteous is delivered from trouble, although the wicked takes his place. It's saying, it's as if he's saying, the righteousness is delivered from trouble and the wicked takes the place of the righteous in that trouble. So now trouble comes to him. Chapter 11, verse 21, assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished, but the descendants of the righteous will be delivered. Now, here's the thing. All of that is true, right? All of that is perfectly true on a general level (laughs) and as a general principle. You, you do reap what you sow, right? You do reap what you sow. God does typically intervene to ensure that the world functions and operates in this cause and effect manner. Uh, as a general rule, God does blast and punish the ungodly, and he does, as a general rule, bless the faithful. And if you don't understand that, you cannot live wisely in this world. If you don't understand that, that those principles are true. Uh, if, if you don't understand and live in light of the principle that sin brings destruction and that righteousness brings blessing, you are a fool, biblically speaking. You have to understand those principles and live in light of them. But having said that, the key is in those phrases such as typically, <laughs> generally speaking, as a general rule. Because God has put 42 chapters in the Bible to tell you, in the book of Job, that sometimes God will suspend his cause and effect pattern and give a righteous man serious and catastrophic trials. This was the problem with Job's, Job's friends, right? The three wise guys, right? This was, their, this was their problem, that they assumed that this principle was an absolute principle. That it was the only way in which God works. 
Uh, for instance, in Job chapter 4, uh, this, is set, this is seven days after the seven days of silence and Job's explanation of his innocence. He, Job's saying that God, God did do what he did, but he didn't do it to punish Job for his unfaithfulness. So Job is initially, he's, he's saying, listen, I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not guilty. God is doing this, but God is not doing this because I've been unfaithful. Okay? Eliphaz comes to Job. He comes along and, and says, listen, the righteous don't suffer like this. The righteous don't suffer like this. Verse 6, is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember now, who, whoever perished being innocent. It's like, no, nobody ever perished being innocent. Or where were the upright destroyed? He, he's just saying, give me an example of where the upright were destroyed. According to what I have seen, verse 8, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Sowing and reaping. That's what he's basically telling Job. Job, if you're going through this, there's a reason. You're reaping the consequences of what you've done. Job chapter 5, verse 8. But as for me, Eliphaz says, I, I, would, I would seek God and I would place my cause before God. Verse 12. He frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot attain success. Verse 17. Behold, now how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. It's as if he's saying, Job, you're guilty. Just admit that you're guilty. I mean, he's trying to convince Job, Job, you're not seeing this right. You have to be guilty because of these things that are going on in your life. Job chapter 15, verse 12. Eliphaz starts rebuking, starts to rebuke Job, saying, essentially, why would you, why would you rage against God as if you are pure? No one is pure, especially you, Job. Okay, Listen, he says, Why does your heart, verse 12, carry you away? And why do, why do, why do your eyes flash that, that you should turn your spirit against God and allow such words to go out of your mouth? What is man that he, he should be pure, or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. That, that's not bad theology, by the way, in the sense that he's, I mean, yes, compared to God, we're, none of us are pure. That is a true statement. The problem is that it's coming from the lips of a man who had the attitude that if bad things happen to you, you must not be living right. That's the problem. Job 22, verse 3. Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous or profit if you make your ways perfect? Is it because of your reverence that he reproves you, that he enters into judgment against you? Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? So at this point, Eliphaz essentially gets to the point of presumption, uh, being, being presumptuous. And for the rest of the chapter, he's making things up, right? He is suggesting that Job has done these bad things although he really doesn't have any proof that Job's done these bad things. He says in verse 6, For you have taken pledges of your brothers without cause, and you have stripped men naked. It's like, we don't have any, we don't have any example of this. <laughs> right? You've stripped men na- naked. To the weary you have given no water to drink. And from the hungry you have withheld bread. <laughs> but then Eliphaz basically says, I mean, I, I don't know that you've done this. All I know is that you suffering this bad, if you're suffering this bad, 
You have to have done something to deserve it. Bildad. Bildad says to Job, this, this boil-covered man, saw, uh, Job 18, verse 5, Indeed, the light of the wicked goes out, and the flame of his fire gives no light. Verse 13, his skin is devoured by disease. The firstborn of death devours his... What is he referring to? Well, whose skin is being devoured by disease? Job. And what does he say in verse 8? Indeed, the light of the wicked... He's just saying, Job, you're being wicked. You're wicked. Zophar says to Job in chapter 11, verse 14, If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Then, indeed, you could lift up your face without moral defect, and you would be steadfast and not fear. Chapter 20, verse 2, Therefore my disquieting thoughts make me respond, even because of my inward agitation. I listen to the reproof which insults me. And the reproof, the reproof here came from Job defending his own innocence. So the reason that it was insulting, I mean, Zophar is saying, I listened to the reproof. He's, he's referring back to Job's defense of himself, and he's saying that your defense of your innocence was re, reproved me. Now, why, why, is that, why is it in, in, insulting? It was insulting because it meant that Zophar's prosperity was not necessarily a consequence of what? His righteousness. So he says, I listened to the reproof which insults me, and the spirit of my understanding makes me answer do you, know this, do you know this from old, from of old, from the establishment of man on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless momentary? He's saying, this is old stuff. I mean, this isn't current, like, modern-day wisdom. This stuff has been from the foundation. Do you not know that from the very beginning that, that those who, who are wicked, that their life is cut short? And their joy is momentary. So all three of these men made a serious mistake in their evaluation of what was happening and why it was happening. Why? Because God broke the pattern. God broke the pattern. Job 1.1 states that Job was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Derek Kidner says this, it was his very innocence that exposed him to the ordeal. <laughs> it was actually the righteousness and godliness of this man that exposed him to the trials that he went, that he went through. That is to say, calamity didn't run Job down because he was bad. In fact, he was above reproach and walked with a clean conscience. And the accusations of these men were false and their lies broke Job's heart. But this isn't the only problem of assuming that this general principle of cause and effect is an absolute principle. Job's friends assumed that Job's trials were a result of sin, but they also at the very same time assumed that if Job had lived righteously, that he would have been blessed. Right? So they're looking at both sides of this. And if Job would have, would have decided to live right... He could have, now think about this, if, if Job, this is their thinking now, and they get this again, they're just looking back at, at all these other things in Scripture. I think they honestly believed that if Job would have lived right, that he could have kept the trials that he experienced at bay. He could have had a trial-free life, right? I mean, isn't that basically where they're going with this? 
if it's absolutely in every case true that if you experience bad things, then it's because you're bad, you've done bad things. And if you experience blessing and prosperity always and in every case because of your righteousness, then doesn't it make sense that they would fall into the trap of thinking that if you'll just live right, you can have a hurt-free, pain-free, trial-free life? Right? If only Job would have experienced or if he would have followed the wisdom formula. And this was the unfortunate error of the wisdom culture, uh, of that wisdom culture of the Old Testament and what, they, and what they committed and how they viewed these things. They overemphasized a true principle of the Mosaic law and turned it into a safeguard against calamity and adversity. They viewed the cause and effect principle as a way of sort of controlling your future. You can be in charge. <laughs> you can be in charge of your life. And that wisdom culture and that abuse of wisdom was Solomon's historical context. So all of the, these three main wisdom books, Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, they all work together. You can't understand one without the others. They, they sort of balance each other out. And this is just another case. When we get to Ecclesiastes 7 and you begin in 15, 16, 17, 18, this is what we're up against. Proverbs and the abuse of the general principle of Proverbs' law of consequences and highlighted in the book of Job is the background that helps us to understand many of the difficult statements in Ecclesiastes, especially this one in chapter 7, primarily verse 16. God's wisdom can be abused, and it was. When they said, follow the formula of righteous living and you can control whether good or bad happens to you. Now, question, who would do such a thing? Who would do such a thing? We would. Right? We would. We would do this. We do this. Thinking that we can write our own story. Believing that we can guarantee the life that we want. Folks, this is about idolatry, is it not? I mean, is this not about expectations? We have expectations about how life is supposed to, to, to pan out, right? We believe in some ways, in some situations, that we can control things, that, that, that we can guarantee that we're going to get what we want out of life by attempting to use, in some cases, righteous living to man, manipulate perpetual good from God. It's as if we're backing God into a corner and saying, I'm being a righteous person. I'm doing the right thing. I'm being faithful to you, Lord. You have to bless me. You have to keep trials away. You have to bring prosperity. Or in some cases, swinging the other way and living as if the reap what you sow principle isn't even true. <laughs> so you look and you see that this doesn't always play out, right? These general principles, they're not absolute. And so we, people, some people swing the total opposite direction and say, well, if, if we're not going to experience the hammer when we do bad things, then why not just multiply wickedness? So in some cases, we do that. Multiplying wickedness because God has been gracious to us and to others in the past by not blasting them when they sinned. Again, Asaph says, man, I almost slipped in my Christian life. Why? Because I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
So as you can see, Solomon was not a heretic. Okay? We'll come back to verse 16, but when he says, do not be excessively righteous, it sounds heretical. Does it not? Don't go too far with God. Don't love Jesus too much. Don't read the word too much. Don't be too pure or too holy. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like heresy, but what we're, I think with this background, when you understand sort of what, so, what Solomon's historical setting in that, in that culture, you understand that Solomon was not heretical at all. He was just dealing with a very specific historical problem, and the problem at its core is still a problem that we deal with today. And he has some wise counsel, some wise counsel for us in these verses, and, and we'll look at that in detail next week. So just file, file this, these things away about this sort of wisdom culture and that, that tendency to take proverbial truths and to make them absolute, that God, God is obligated to do this because in Proverbs it says exactly this, and we do this, okay? I've seen parents go to passages such as what? That if you train up a child in the way that he or she will go, then they, when they are old, they will not depart from And we turn that into an absolute promise that God has to do what? Save your kids? Are you kidding me? But how many of you have ever run across this? I mean, I, I, all the time. And they won't say it. And we won't say it, <laughs> right? We won't admit it. We would never tell someone, oh, I know. I'm confident God will do this because of what I did. But, but, but don't we build an expectation? We build an expectation that if we're doing right, good will come, and that if we're doing bad or we see someone else experiencing trials, that that must mean that they're not being faithful. And we fall into the same trap that Job's friends fell into. That will become the historical context and setting for us next week when we actually go verses 15, 16, 17, 18, and we read those verses in light of that truth, that foundation, it'll all make sense. Okay, so file this away, read, read those verses, get familiar with them, and we'll, we'll walk through them pretty rapidly, but I think you'll get a lot, a lot out of that because this confronts our idolatrous desires of wanting to control our lives rather than trust in the sovereignty of God. Okay, All right, folks, thank you for your time.